Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, it is the fourth Tuesday of the month. Yeah, fourth Tuesday, which means it's time for Move Well to Age Well with our resident physical therapist, plant-based, of course, Eileen Kapsoftis. And today she's going to be talking about unknown facts about shoulder pain and maybe a few known facts. Who knows? Please welcome Eileen to the show. Great to see you again. I always enjoy your presentations. Yes, I always love being here and I'm excited to share what I have to share today because there's a lot of things that people don't understand about the shoulder and it can really be persnickety in people's lives. So I'm hoping that this is going to be helpful. Persnickety. You don't hear that word too much. It's a good word. I guess I'm showing my age, right? <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, I love to hear that because I, I don't have shoulder problems now, but I did tear a rotator cuff playing pickleball and a, a year and a half it took to heal. It was a slow heal. Mm, yes. Yes. It, shoulders are, it's the most mobile joint in the body. So it can be. Did tough. not know that. Yes. All right, well, I'm gonna be showing some slides. Let's see, can I share my screen? You sure can. And there's something that I think you have to hit or does it matter? I thought I hit it already. Okay, there we go. There we go. Everybody can see that? Yep. All right, perfect. So um, whoop, let me do this. That way it's a little bigger for you all, that's better. Okay, so um, I'm gonna do this in a part one and a part two because the shoulder is so complex, right? As I said, it is the most mobile joint in the body. Um, it's a very complex joint and there's a lot of misunderstanding and inaccurate information about shoulder function out there. And you know, it's always my goal to dispel inaccuracies, right? So that's why I kind of call these unknown facts about shoulder pain. And you can see it does say it may not be your shoulder. And I think that's probably the most important point that I would like everyone to grasp today because um, your shoulder has about 18 muscles that directly impact its function. Only four of them are the rotator cuff, by the way. And we're always beating up the rotator cuff. And I, and I don't mean by injuring it, but I mean by training it, thinking that's going to resolve shoulder pain when it's rarely the rotator cuff's problem, unless it's directly injured. But I'm going to show you some slides today that might be a little bit of an eye opener as well. And um, but but the rest of the body, the entire rest of the body indirectly impacts shoulder function. So, um, you know, I, I've got a, a exercise, I think it's about a four week series that I teach in my academy called Peltruncula, because your pelvis, your trunk and your scapula all have to play nice with each other and feed off each other. So it's, it's important, right? Okay, so let's go on here. Um, yeah, I like this statement because it's so true. When we understand authentic human movement, we are going to make better training choices and we're going to have improved results. We're going to stop beating up our body and, and doing potential harm, right? With what something we think is good for us. You know, the fitness industry, there's a lot of inaccuracy out there and I'm not pointing fingers at anyone or blaming anyone. It's just, you know, become these, these mantras, right? Like no pain, no gain. And, and, you know, you need to isolate a muscle to restore strength. And there's just a lot of misunderstanding. So I'm hoping that I'm going to clarify some of that today. And then of course, I need to make sure that everyone understands that, uh, you know, this is for educational purposes. I'm not diagnosing or treating anyone. This is purely educational, informational, and everyone has to be careful and not do things they know they should not do. And if they do any movement that causes pain, they need to stop. Okay. So, so that's, hopefully that's clear. Okay. Now, shoulder pain. 
you can see here, you know, there's there's a lot of bones involved, right? You've got your scapula with this big old area here. Um, you know, this is the back. Here's your, your humerus, your arm bone. And you'll see, you know, this is just a, a, you could get one that shows a lot of other muscles and a lot of other things. I'm going to show anatomy pictures next week and go a little bit more into the actual structure of the shoulder. Today, I decided to talk about common diagnoses, common treatments, and then, as always, show some movements uh, so that people can start training their body in a better way. So common diagnoses. Rotator cuff injuries are very, very common, right? Impingement syndrome, bursitis or tendonitis, osteoarthritis, and shoulder pain. So I thought you would like a picture of the actual rotator cuff and how it gets torn. And so, you know, this is a full tear, a full thickness tear. Now, obviously, this isn't going to reconnect itself. It's a full tear. Believe it or not, a, a partial tear can heal itself. The body's pretty amazing. So if it's just a partial tear, it can potentially heal. There's a lot of different strategies that can be used to promote that um, and then, so aside from torn rotator cuff, we also have tendonitis. And you can see what happens is usually it, it'll, there's one or two particular muscles in the rotator cuff that tend to be the most common ones that get injured. And the supraspinatus, or this particular is calling it supraspinous, but it's called supraspinatus as well. Um, can get injured. And a lot of that has to do with if it gets impinged. And that's this next picture where you have a bursa, which is a fat pad. You've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of muscles in the body, depending on which anatomy book you look at, anywhere from 600 to 700. But, but bursa, you've got, I'm trying to remember now, I think it's 200 or less. Uh, I can't recall the exact number, but it's usually where there's a lot of friction, a lot of um, potential harm that can happen. And the bursa is meant to be a cushion and protect the tendon from getting injured. It's like a protective area of the body. And so right here, you can see, this is the arm bone. For someone who it hurts for them to lift their arm up like so, it's usually because there's a decreased joint space here, and this is jamming on the acromion, which comes around from the scapula or the shoulder blade, right? Um, some people call them angel wings. So, um, so that said, you know, that's where that impingement can happen. Now, ideally, if all of the muscles are playing nice with each other, there is plenty of joint space and things aren't jamming. So, you know, why would somebody go until they were in their 40s or 50s and all of a sudden lose joint space, right? It, 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 I think logic would make us think, well, something must have happened. Something must have changed because I didn't have this problem when I was in my 20s. So, and it's not that it's age related, it's, it's more that something wasn't playing nice. And over time, it decreased the joint space when you go to lift the arm. So there are things that can be done to improve this. And then osteoarthritis. Um, I talked about this in, I think it might've been my very first time with you, AJ. Uh, the title was How Food Impacts Arthritis and Chronic Pain. So if anybody's interested in watching that, I go deep into the fact that what you put in your mouth intimately impacts the health of your joints. So it's very important for people to know that. And I'm not gonna take that time here because we already covered that some time ago and that video's there. So common treatments for shoulder pain. 
Injections are very common, corticosteroid injections, right? Because of the inflammation, medications, of course, for inflammation and pain. And then surgery, you know, they'll do a debridement where there's something going on in the bone. You'll have these little spurs, you'll have these, these you know, tendons that are kind of rough and, and all this stuff. Um, and then of course, rotator cuff repair, right up to a total shoulder replacement, which uh, there's a surgeon in our area who does a really good job with sh shoulder replacements. If you absolutely need one, he's the guy to see. Um, best outcomes I've seen of anybody. They've gotten a lot better at doing shoulder replacements. But imagine, as I said, it's the most mobile joint in the body. It's the most at-risk joint of having issues aside from the ankle, uh, which I don't know how many people are here who um, attended my recent exercise away plantar fasciitis event, but uh, you all learned just how important the ankle is, right? And the foot. And then the conventional physical therapy, and I put conventional because it's that's kind of across the board. It's, it's what's done. Um, I had a, a student shadowing me uh, recently and commented that there was a clinic that she went to where everyone was very, very, very nice. Um, and the PT was very nice and she liked being there, but she was curious because the PT had a teenage girl come in with knee pain. She also had a man in his 50s come in with knee pain. And what the PT did was she went to the computer and she printed off exercises for knees. And this person was used to, you know, working with me and seeing how I assess people and tailor the movements to what they need. And so, you know, there is no cookie cutter approach. So I want to caution people a lot of the times, um, and there's a lot of fabulous PTs out there that I, I wish I could be when I grow up. So I'm not, you know, slamming my profession per se, but there is also, it's going to be based on the knowledge and the skill and the experience of who you work with, like any profession. And so if somebody's just printing off exercises out of a computer without truly assessing you to see what's causing it in your body, um, then, you know, they may have limited ability to help you. So uh, that's why I put here conventional PT and then modalities, right? Heat, ice, um, e-stim, ultrasound, all of those types of things, and then shoulder therapeutic exercise. And again, you know, everybody wants to beat up the rotator cuff. I'm going to go more in detail on this next uh, month in part two. So uh, the most important question to ask when you're advised to do any of these things, a new medication or change of medication or have a test taken or undergo a procedure is, how effective is it at fixing my problem and what are the risks? We really need to be asking these questions. Um, you know, one of the reasons I love watching Dr. John McDougall is because he's very clear on things that have more risk than benefit. And uh, I think he's just a blessing to the world. And many of the people that have been on this show are as well. So this is a really good, important question to ask when it comes to physical movement and any chronic pain you might be experiencing. So I'm going to show you a study here. This was a study that was done about corticosteroid injections to the shoulder versus manual physical therapy. And notice I say manual, which means they're actually putting their hands on someone and altering how the joint is functioning and improving how the joint is functioning, I should say. Uh, and this is for impingement syndrome, where you've got that lack of joint space or decreased joint space and it's jamming. So there were over hundred people in this study and they did make sure that, you know, they, that they got people who hadn't had PT or an injection within three months of enrolling. So they were careful in, in gathering their subjects. 
and they randomly assign them to either have manual PT. Now catch this, just twice a week for three weeks. So we're talking only six PT sessions. We're not talking going for three and four months here, right? Or up to three injections during a one-year follow-up. So they were one or the other. And then the questionnaire was assessing their pain, their function before treatments, during it, and then multiple times up until that one-year follow-up. And what they wanted to know was whether these subjects saw um, physicians or other health professionals or received any additional procedures, right? Like x-rays or more PT or more injections for shoulder pain during the year after the study. And so this is what they found. Both groups had a significant improvement in shoulder pain one month after treatment. Both groups showed improvement continued for one year after. However, the injection group during that one year follow-up had more visits to physicians, healthcare professionals, more procedures than the manual PT group. So, so, you know, you might be saying, well, you know, going to PT six times, what if I just get the shot? I'm going to be better. Well, if it's putting you at risk of needing more things and there are side effects involved when it comes to corticosteroid injections, um, these side effects are listed by the manufacturers of the uh, medication itself. So death of nearby bone, osteo means bone, necrosis means death. Joint infection, anytime you break through the skin with anything, there's a risk of infection. Nerve damage can happen, deterioration of cartilage, tendon weakening or rupture of the tendon, and then thinning of the nearby bone or osteoporosis. And that surgeon I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, you know, I, I remember him lecturing in our clinic, and this was over two decades ago, and he very clearly stated, you never want to do an injection to the same area more than once because it can rupture the tendons. So this has been known for a very long time. And so, you know, those, those people who have chronic pain and they want to get injection after injection, I'm not telling anybody they should live in severe pain, but there are inherent risks involved. And I think everyone should be informed of those risks, right? And then we've got full-blown rotator cuff surgery. And, you know, this is where they're reattaching the rotator cuff. You can see they, they're using, you know, all kinds of, of tools and things. Um, here's where there's an inflamed bursa and they're, they're literally shaving off bone spurs and they're repairing the rotator cuff here. Um, here's that supraspinatus tendon. It's repaired and they're doing a special mattress and suture and a speed screw. So they're, they're fixing damage, basically, right? Now, this is about rotator cuff. Now, this you all may find interesting. When I came across this study, I was sort of blown away here. The prevalence of symptoms or no symptoms when it comes to rotator cuff tears in the general population, and this was a mass screening of a village where they screened everybody, all 664 subjects. Obviously, it was a small village, right? That was their mass population. But you can see here, 147 of them, or about 22%, had full thickness rotator cuff tears. Now, here's the part that blew me away. About a third of them had symptoms, but almost two-thirds of them had no symptoms. So we're all kind of like, huh? I mean, my head sort of went tilt, right? Full thickness rotator cuff tears and no symptoms? And then what they saw was the prevalence of tears um, it increased depending on their age. So the, the villagers who were in their 20s to their 40s, there were no tears seen. Those in their 50s, about 10% of them had tears. 
And as you can see, it just increased as they got older with the highest number of tears in those in their 80s. Now here's a little visual as a graph. The light gray is those who have no symptoms, asymptomatic, without symptoms. And the dark gray is those who had symptoms. So the people in their 80s, a lot more of them had no symptoms than those who did. Same thing in 70s, same thing in 60s, and it was about half and half with those in their 50s. But I thought this was fascinating. So what would be the takeaway from this? The takeaway would be, um, you know, I've learned how complex the shoulder is. I've learned how there's so much else of the body that can impact shoulder function that has nothing to do with the rotator cuff. Potentially, um, the, the reason that people have pain in their shoulder may not be because of a tear in the rotator cuff. It may be because of other things, right? So I, I think this really bears pondering and, and asking more questions. And of course, with anything, there's risks with surgery, right? Nerve injury to the deltoid, uh, deltoid detachment, infection, stiffness, tendon re-injury, all these things are risks of rotator cuff surgery. No surgeries without risks. And then here's some data on rotator cuff surgery. No evidence was found in favor of any non-surgical or surgical or post-surgical intervention. They did a pretty deep study. So what they concluded was even though surgery seems to give better results compared to non-surgery, it's hard to draw firm evidence-based conclusions for the effectiveness of non-surgical or post-surgical interventions to treat rotator cuff tears. And they're saying more research is clearly needed. So maybe this is because maybe somebody showed a rotator cuff tear and everyone assumed that's what was causing their pain, but maybe their pain was because other body parts weren't working right. The shoulder wasn't being supported by the pelvis. The thoracic spine was, was, was immobile in more than one plane of motion and the shoulder got trashed every time the arm got used, but it wasn't the shoulder's fault, it was the thoracic spine. So what if, right? There's a lot of what ifs here. And then here's more data, outcomes of rehab therapy and those who have irreparable massive rotator cuff tears, which means these are, these are really bad, and shoulder pseudoparalysis vary according to the site and number of the tears, how many tears and where are they? So failure of rehab for that is common in patients who have massive anterior tears, that would be the front of the shoulder, or tears involving at least three tendons, so three or more. And in contrast, those with isolated, even though it could be massive, posterior tears or the back of the shoulder, substantial benefits from rehab therapy can be expected. So some of these details I think are important to know when we're making our rehab choices, right? And then decompression surgery. This is right across the board. Non-surgical treatment is recommended first. And I know a lot of the times people aren't recommended to go to uh, physical therapy. I mean, some of the data shows that I think only 3% of people who go to a doctor for pain are referred to PT, which is a really, really minuscule number of people who have pain considering seven out of 10 reasons people go to the doctor is for pain, um, it's kind of crazy, right? But for decompression, non-surgical treatment is recommended first, at least three to four months of non-surgical treatment. 
um, using stretches, strengthening. Um, here they were actually doing an injection to the subacromial space, which data doesn't really support that all that well, but this was included in this, this research. Um, it does suggest that patients who give non-surgical treatments worthwhile effort, which means actually go, actually do the homework, show up to the visits, may avoid surgery and have similar outcomes to those who choose surgery as their first treatment. So, and I know most people, you know, as you said, AJ, recovering from surgery for shoulder, it takes a long time. I mean, you're, you're talking typically a year to get that shoulder back to proper functioning. So if there's any chance of not needing the surgery, I'm, I'm guessing people would choose that, right? And then here's just a little picture of a total shoulder replacement. Um, you know, you can get a total shoulder arthrop uh, arthroplasty, and then there's a reverse shoulder arthroplasty. And the reason the reverse was created is mainly for people who have very um, limited mobility elsewise in their lives. Say somebody is wheelchair bound and they are propelling themselves in a wheelchair. They found that the, the typical total shoulder, total shoulder arthroplasty, say that three times fast, um, is, is tended to have more problems with people who were using their arms differently, like to propel a wheelchair. Uh, so the reverse shoulder can be a better option. So ideally the surgeon that you seek would know these things, would ask these questions and would understand, but I thought getting that information out there might help people to know better questions to ask, right? So here's another important question to ask when we're treating pain, especially if it's chronic, is will it relieve the symptoms or will it resolve the cause? And you've all heard me, if you've watched me more than once here um, in this channel, that resolving the cause is ideal because alleviating the symptoms doesn't necessarily resolve the problem. And you know, it's sort of like we can take medications to manipulate our blood biomarkers and have great blood work at the doctor, but if we haven't altered our diet and changed how we're feeding our body, We've still got damaged endothelial cells. We've still got all kinds of stuff going on in our cardiovascular system that is does not reduce our risk of heart attack, strokes, or events, right? So it's the same thing when it comes to pain. Are we addressing the symptoms or are we addressing the cause and working to resolve it? So, you know, I prefer resolution of the cause. So uh, I'm going to go downstairs and show you some, some motions, a little bit of movement, and then we, we'll have time for Q&A. Um, but I do want to tell you that I was excited, AJ, when you asked me last month, what was I going to teach on this month? So I decided to create another free event for shoulders. And so that's going to start next month. But if you go to this website, mwpchallenge.com, you can register for it and you'll be kept informed when things are ready to roll out, but it's completely free. It's three days, 90 minutes a day, all about understanding the shoulder. So that is that. Nice, yeah. wonderful presentation. Just to be clear, I did not have shoulder surgery, but it took about a year and a half for it to sorry. heal anyway. I'm sorry, when yeah. you mentioned rotator cuff for some reason. Yeah. I no, I, I, I did have some of the injections and mostly it was just PT and rehab, but it still took about a year and a half till I could do this. Yeah, so I'm very happy it resolved for you. It, it got this my husband good. out of jury duty though, because I couldn't dress myself and I, you know, I couldn't. So that was, a, I always like to look at the, so there's, there's the right? silver lining, right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
right. Um, Are there any questions that you think we should answer before? Let I me see if there's questions? any questions. There you have about eight questions that were submitted in advance, but they're not all about shoulders because uh, people don't always know the topic, you know, until they get the newsletter. So uh, maybe go do the gym and I'll entertain okay. the I'll entertain the troops until you get there. All right. All right. See you in a minute. All right. So guys, there's two shows tomorrow, bright and early. We have an 8 a.m. show. It's Drs. Chala and Chala. They're talking about the different pillars of lifestyle medicine. And tomorrow it's about community. And then at 9 a.m., we have Dr. Wayne Dysinger, who was my plant-based lifestyle medicine doctor when I lived in the desert. He's one of the founders of lifestyle medicine at Loma Linda. And he'll be joined by his father, whose name is Dr. Bill Dysinger, who tomorrow will be celebrating his 96th birthday. And he is amazing. So we love to have people that age well on this show. If you haven't seen the interview with nearly 100-year-old Dr. John Scharfenberg, please make sure you check that one out. And back to Eileen in the gym. I love to hear all these wonderful 100-year-olds. Um, it's great. I want to live to at least 112 and be really stinking happy about it. So um, yeah, yeah. Hopefully we'll still be doing this show. <laughs> yes. Yes. I hope so too, AJ. That would be awesome. Okay. So what I'd like to do is explain like i said i'm for part two i'm going to do a little bit of um i'm going to show some anatomy i'm going to uh, explain and and describe sorry i just want to change my screen here so i can see myself better and see what everybody's seeing here that's better okay so um that said i'm going to show you some things that you might all again your head might go tilt what does that have to do with my shoulder so as I said briefly, you've got 18 muscles that directly impact the function of your shoulder. And, and I'm going to show Betty Bones next week, and I'm going to go into all that in, in some detail for you guys who love that, you know, who like to geek out on the details. But, but only four of them are the rotator cuff, which means there's 14 muscles that directly impact your shoulder function. And they're designed for pushing and pulling and lifting and, and all of the grunt work that you use your arms for, right? Your rotator cuff is only designed to keep the shoulder more stable. That's all it's designed to do because it's the most mobile joint in the body. You can't do this with any other of your limbs, right? Well, if you were in the circus, you might be able to do that with your leg. But um but I can't, and I'm guessing most of you can't either. Your hips are like the second most mobile joint, right? But the shoulder is the most mobile. So because what makes it so mobile is because it's a shallow cup so that all that movement is available. And the rotator cuff's job is to keep it more stable in that shallow cup while all the other muscles provide for strength and, and function, right? Doing all the grunt work. So and then the whole rest of the body is what's meant to work with your shoulder so that it's supported, so that it's being um, stabilized in, in real deep, very powerful muscles. And it's not hanging out to dry, being asked to do everything by itself. We've gotten into this thing about isolating muscles, you know, oh, I'm going to isolate my lateral delts. I'm going to isolate my anterior delts. I'm going to isolate right? And, and the problem with that is the human body was designed to work as a, a team, as a machine, right? Everything's got its parts. You wouldn't try to drive your car down the road and, and oh, well, let me only ride on that right front tire, you know, because I want to make it stronger. I mean, we wouldn't even, I mean, I don't think you could get a car to do that, but 
But hopefully I'm making my point. Why do we do that with our bodies when we work out? Because we've been taught that we've been, we've been told, um, and, and it's really inaccurate because the problem is your anterior delt was never designed to work all by itself, hanging out to dry and nothing else working with it. So it's, it's up there screaming, going, what are you doing? Why isn't anybody helping me? Why am I being asked to do this all by myself? And so that's what promotes tendonitis and bursitis and things getting out of whack. And then because there are a whole bunch of other body parts that have to be working really well for your shoulder girdle, right? Um, to have a good stable foundation and everything that goes up into the shoulder from the low back and from the chest and from the thoracic spine, all those muscles and all those body parts are functioning properly so that the shoulder is well supported and working as a team with whatever you're lifting or pulling or pushing. So hopefully that's making sense. So what I wanna show people today is those muscles or those body parts that are really, really, they have to be working right in order for your shoulder to be happy. And, and I've had a lot of people, and I'll share a, a couple of brief stories. I've had a lot of people where I never touched their shoulder and we completely resolve their shoulder problems, right? So I, I remember this one man, he would come in, he was a really, really powerful man. I mean, just, just muscle from head to toe. He's in his sixties and he's, he's, you know, he owns a company where he's got a lot of manual labor workers and he's not shy about getting right in there and doing the manual labor, grabbing the jackhammer and all this stuff. He's a very powerful man, loves to ride his bike. He'll, he'll ride his bike 30 miles to him. That's a short ride. And so Great guy, very physically fit. When he came in with an issue, um, he said when he bent down to pick up his dog, he had shoulder pain, right? Upper, like, right around in here. And so I'm assessing him and I'm like, there's absolutely nothing wrong with this guy's shoulder. And he said, show me what you do when you go to bend down to pick up the dog. So he shows me and I realized, ah, he's counting on a particular function of his hip to control that motion as he goes down. It's got a load and muscles load and then they unload. And I think I've got, do I have my monkey down here? Um, I may not, may have gotten rid of them where I'm upstairs. But the whole point of a muscle loading and unloading is it gets longer. Oh, here he is. Give me one sec, I gotta show you this. Because this is gonna make sense to you all much better if I show you this. So I forgot I had him fly across the room the other day. So if your muscle has to control emotion, it gets longer under tension. And I may have shown this in a past video, but I never remember when I did or didn't. So it bears repeating. So as I go to, to lengthen the monkey, right? I'm lengthening and loading the muscles. Get a little closer so you can see this better. And so as this gets longer, more tension is being created in those bands or think of them like muscles. It gets longer, more tension, longer, more tension, longer, more tension, right? The more tension that gets built up, the more energy, the more it's loaded so that it's ready to unload, right? And so that's what your muscles are doing when you're moving your body and doing hard work. So if my lower body is not loading properly, if it's not able to take a load and build that energy so that it can unload and push through things, Think about if I'm going to do a, a shoulder press, okay? So say I'm just grab a couple of little lightweights here. So shoulder press, just, you know, pushing up, right? 
well, if I'm going to isolate and I'm going to, I'm not going to use anything else and I'm just going to push up and down. Now I'm asking my shoulders. Now you've got a whole lot of other muscles. Remember you got 18 muscles, right? That are working that, but it would be so much better for my shoulders if I did a little tiny bend to load max power source, right? Load max and then push through my feet as I lift up come down and load lower body and push as I come up. What that's gonna do is that's gonna tell the shoulders, you got some help. We've got something called gravity, ground reaction force and mass and momentum. It's all physics stuff, but the body utilizes that. And so if we're trying to keep that out of the equation and isolate a muscle, we're making that muscle work harder than it was designed to work and we're risking injury, right? And that, that's for like everything. So what I want to show you is that man, when he bent to pick up the dog, he had mechanics in the hip that weren't loading properly. So we took that session and I had him do some exercises that loaded the hip prop and restored the motions he had to be able to do, which was internal rotation, adduction, and flexion. And so we did some work for that in that session. And at the end of the session, he could bend down and I had him use a, I had him pick up a weight off the floor, kind of pretending he was picking up the dog and he could do it with no symptoms whatsoever in his shoulder, completely resolved. Now he never touched his shoulder, right? So the funny part is, is he looks at me and he goes, that's voodoo. And I just laughed. I go, no, I call it science, right? You just have to understand how your body's designed. And it wasn't his shoulder that was the problem. So what I'd like to do for this part one is teach you some movements to make sure what's happening below your shoulder is working better. And then in part two, I'm gonna show more specific shoulder exercises. So it'll give you all time to make sure that your body's functioning well for healthy shoulder function, okay? So you wanna make sure Max is working. There's also, you wanna make sure your ankles are working. So, and if you watch the um, session that I did on here last month for plantar fasciitis, I taught how to make sure those, those ankles are, are mobilizing well, right? So I'm not gonna repeat that here, you can go check that out. But I wanna explain, I had a football quarterback who come in rock solid muscle from head to toe and he couldn't do his typical three hour, three man throw practices because his shoulder and his elbow bothered him about halfway through, he'd have to stop early and his diagnosis was tendonitis of the shoulder and the elbow, there was nothing wrong anywhere there at all. But his ankles were very unstable. So when he went to release the ball, it was releasing too late because his ankle wasn't stopping him. It wasn't stabilizing him. So it made his arm go a little too far each time he released and it was trash in the shoulder and the elbow wasn't happy either. So once we got his ankle stabilized after about three or four sessions, he could do three hour, three man throws with no symptoms whatsoever, never touched his shoulder. So a lot of the times it's not your shoulder that's the problem. So we can't beat up the victim. We have to look for the culprit and figure out what's going on, right? Which is, there's a lot more of this in my book, Pain Culprits, that I explain a lot of this stuff if you're curious to learn more. So let me show you uh, some work that's gonna make sure that your pelvis and your hips are performing better. And you may just notice that your shoulders feel better after doing this if you've got any shoulder issues. And again, as I said, next month, 
I will do more for the shoulders. So uh, a good idea is to make sure that you can load the back hip with a squat. Uh, it's not that it's terrible for your knees to go forward, because when you go to get something out from under the kitchen sink, you're not worried about your knees not going over your toes, right? So it is an authentic human movement. It's not abnormal. But the goal is if you're doing, if you're squatting down like this, you're going to feel it more in your quads because they're getting loaded more, right? If you're squatting down like this and going backward, you're going to feel it more in max. You're going to feel it more in the back hip, gluteus maximus. So that's why I say it's a good idea to put a chair behind you when you do these movements so that you've got a target and you make sure that you're only going backward and your knees aren't going over your toes. Now, when you go down like this, you're going to feel all the weight on your heels. Your toes might want to even come up off the air, off the floor. So I recommend people do this, maybe hanging on to the kitchen sink or something at first, so that if it throws their balance off a little bit, they're safer, so they can go a little bit lower and really load max. But it's so important that that body part is strong and functional. If you've got, you know, what I lovingly call a pancake butt, then you've lost some power, you've lost strength in max and your shoulders won't be happy, your low back won't be happy, your knees won't be happy. Max is really important, right? And of course, there's a lot of other muscles in the hip, and the, but the, you know everybody knows max. So you wanna make sure max is working really, really well, okay? Now, there's some other planes of motion that are important that your body is working in as well to make sure that your shoulders are really healthy. So why I say planes of motion is we move forward and we move back and we move sideways and we turn. So <clears throat> max, of course, right? That's more the going backward, okay? Now, it's also important that going forward is, is able to handle things too. And I know a lot of people are all caught up <clears throat> excuse me, on crunches and, and sit-ups and all of those kind of things, leg lifts and stuff like that. Well, surprisingly, your, your abs are really designed to um, load when you're upright so that you don't fall backward. And so like reaching up overhead, bending backward, that really loads the front of the body. So, you know, if you've got shoulder issues, you're probably not going to be able to do this and get your shoulders up there. But you, if you want to load the front of the body, there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, one way that I like is using a band. But again, if your shoulders aren't happy, you're not going to want to lift them up. But if your shoulders are okay with this and you come forward so that you're feeling that tension and you keep your elbows right by your ears and you just go back a little, you're going to feel that front of that body load and then come forward. So this is a beautiful way to really feel those those abs work in a way that you've probably never done before because they're getting longer before you're trying to get them shorter. So you're loading them like the monkey and then you're unloading them, releasing the energy that they created. So, and you can do that in stride, one foot forward, the other foot forward. If your shoulders aren't happy with that, <clears throat> there are some other ways, but it really does help to be able to get your arms up overhead to really load the front of the body. Now the trunk, the trunk is another very important body part that intimately impacts shoulder 
function. And it's because your scapula, your, your shoulder blades just sit right on top of the rib cage in the back, right? So, and then the, the ribs are attached to your thoracic spine. So if your thoracic spine has lost mobility, I often call it the silent saboteur because rarely do people have pain in the thoracic spine. They'll have shoulder pain, they'll have hip pain, they'll have low back pain, they'll have neck pain. But the problem is the thoracic spine has lost mobility. And so a nice way to train that is to get it moving. Now, again, depending on how much arm motion you've got available to you, getting the trunk moving. So, you know, coming down, right, to get it into flexion and then getting it into extension. So even if you can't get your arms up, if you can get them up overhead, that's even better. But if you can't do that, just getting that, that spine going forward and back, you can even do this. And I think I taught this one when we, we talked about the neck, AJ, I'm pretty sure. So, but mobilizing that spine in different ways, right? And of course, side to side. So if you've got the ability to get the arms up, getting that trunk to go side to side and get that nice side bending is also important. Oh, my monkey just decided to start screaming. Now, talk about a delay scream, that's funny. And then do rotation. And so this is a biggie. A lot of people lose rotation in that trunk, like huge loss. This is why a lot of people as they age really struggle to back up their car because they just lost the ability to rotate. And it's usually the thoracic spine, right? So, so let's get that rotating. Now, if you've got a way that it likes and a way that it doesn't like, just do what it likes. You'd be surprised if repetitively you do the, the motion it likes, how quickly it'll restore the motion it doesn't like. Or if you don't have a lot of motion, just do a little. But the more you change direction, it's just like that nice fluid fill effect, that nice pumping mechanism. Before you know it, you can go further and further and further, right? And if you, I, I taught a class in my academy this morning, if, if your shoulders get tired because your arms are out like this, if you change your hand direction, so maybe have your hands, palms facing each other, or even palms up, you may notice it doesn't tire out your shoulders as much by having the arms out. But getting that full rotation is key, right? So those are all really, really important. You gotta make sure Max is working, make sure your ankles are working, make sure your trunk is fully mobile. And then you can, you can start adding some specific shoulder workouts but you still wanna make sure you're capitalizing on all those physics things, right? That, that you're, you're using the whole body to support below the shoulder girdle and you're not trying to isolate the shoulders. So uh, I'm hoping I made that pretty clear. It's, um, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you're, you're asking, you got a whole sports team, and you're asking everybody to sit on the bench and you're sending one person out onto the court or onto the field to play the game. And he's like, why isn't anybody else coming with me? Because your body's designed to work as a team. And, and I know I repeat that, but it's you know so important to emphasize that we've gotten so caught up in isolating things that, uh, you know, and, and how many people have been taught to do the, to exercise the rotator cuff by doing external rotation, right? 
So if the rotator cuff's job is to stabilize you, why are we trying to make it more powerful? Its job is just to keep that bone in the cup. How about if we get all the other muscles to work properly so that the shoulder doesn't get stressed and strained, forcing the rotator cuff to do something it wasn't designed to do, trying to add to the power you're asking the shoulder when it's not its job. So hopefully that makes sense, right? And so next month, I'm going to show some very specifics. But for those of you who, you know, don't want to wait until next month, just make sure you're using your body when you go to do presses, when you, you know, when you go to lift up, get your pelvis under there and support, support that shoulder girdle, right? When you, if you're doing one arm up, it's really important. And again, I don't recommend isolating. Now, if you're being advised by a healthcare practitioner or, or a clinician or someone that you're seeing, I'm not telling you to go against what they're advising. I'm simply providing education and maybe you can ask some more informed questions to clarify what you're doing and why. That's always a good idea too. So hopefully that was helpful. Thank you. Um, do you are you ready for questions yet? Absolutely. Great. Well, there's one in the chat from Connie and she says, when I raise my right arm, I have crunching noise around my shoulder blade. No real pain. Is continued movement making it worse or better? What is that Rice Krispie sound we sometimes hear? Yeah, so there's there's different theories about what makes the noise, but technically the body was, well, bluntly, the body was designed to move silently, right? So um, I've worked with a lot of young um, dirt bike athletes and they can't walk across the floor without making a noise because they've had so many injuries. Their ankle is snapping with every step. And I always tease them. You're never going to sneak up behind your mom in the kitchen, right? Because she's going to hear you coming. Um, but the, but the, the, the crunching, typically it's there, there's a timing issue that's going on, right? Where the muscles and the bones are not, they're not aligned well enough where everything is moving at the right time in the right way. So things are kind of grinding or getting caught. You know, some of the little snapping and popping, they say, could be some bubbles in the synovial fluid. Um, I did a really deep dive on um, what makes the noise when people crack their knuckles. And I have a whole article on that. So if anybody wants that, just um, put it in the chat and I'll and I'll provide it to uh, to AJ. And you guys could read that article on, on that noise. It was fascinating. That's so. cool. I always call it Rice Krispies. Sounds like snap, crack, yes. pop. Yes. Uh, Jen says, in general, what's the most common way to injure a shoulder during exercise? Um, if it's during exercise, um, there's there's several possibilities or potentials, I should say. Um, you could be doing things that you don't have enough strength for. So, for instance, if you're going to lift a weight, right? So, say, um, let me grab a heavier one here. So say, say you're going to lift a weight and say you've got, you know, you got a light one and you got a heavy one, right? Is the heavy one making you go, oh, right? Oh, that would not be a good idea, right? Because now it's too heavy for you. You're forcing your body to get really stiff when you're lifting that weight. And that stiffness is what puts you at risk of injury. So, I mean, unless you're a power lifter and, and you're in competitions or, you know, you've got some very specific goals that require you to handle massive weights, it's not a good idea to try to, to move weights that cause your body to stiffen. That, that's, that's a huge risk of injury right there. 
Um, I would say some other commons would be people doing, um, a lot of the times we're, we're taught to do specific exercises for the shoulder. And if the rest of the body isn't there, like I said, that it kind of leaves the shoulder hanging out to dry, especially if we're trying to isolate. I think that's probably the number one risk of injury is the isolating, trying to, to not allow any other body part to move except for that one motion and making sure we've got perfect form and all that. And I'm not against perfect form, but if the goal is to isolate a muscle, it's not necessarily a wise idea because it's not authentic human function. So um, those are probably some of the biggies. Um, and then sometimes if somebody's got things that are, aren't aligned and aren't working right, and they go to do, say they go to do push-ups or anything that really forces the front of the body, that's, that's kind of a, an increased risk for shoulder issues as well because of the potential impingement and, and, and ending up. And then um, pull-ups. I literally injured my own shoulder years ago doing pull-ups um, because I went down a little too low. I, I dropped down at the bottom of my pull-up. And I decided to give it a little extra length, which I shouldn't have done because one of my shoulders didn't like that. And uh, I literally ended up with frozen shoulder, but I was able to resolve it in about three months, which typically a frozen shoulder takes a year to two years. So, wow. Yeah, that, there, there's a question. Can you talk about frozen shoulder treatment options? What can be done to help heal it? I've heard it can take several months to years to resolve. Yes. Yes. So uh, I guess I did a segue into that. Right. So I um, did a lot of research because I was I only knew conventional PT for frozen shoulder at the time that I developed it. My knowledge was fairly limited. The only knowledge I had was conventional, which was you bring the person in, you do this very aggressive stretching, which usually makes them want to cry. Um, sometimes you'd have them go and do a surgical manipulation, which means the surgeon would literally put them to sleep and manipulate their shoulder and break all the, what's considered adhesions, but it's really the joint capsule trying to protect the joint. Um, and, uh, and then hopefully if they send them to PT quick enough, they get them moving the shoulder before it freezes up again. So it's a really nasty, nasty thing and it's very painful. And so I did a real deep dive into research, found a lot of different things to do. There was a great um, book that I purchased on doing trigger point therapy for frozen shoulder that I found very helpful. I did a lot of trigger point therapy. I started doing that on my own patients when they came in with, with, um, with frozen shoulder, which got the pain down a lot faster and started to help with movement. Um, there's also, you know, I love the melt method. I've mentioned it on here before. That's a great way to get the fascial system to start to play nice and repair, especially um, injured areas. And, um, and a lot of three-plane function, a lot of things that the body was happier doing. I wasn't trying to force my shoulder to do anything. So doing, it, it was a really multi-prong approach, but it made a big difference and, and I recovered a lot faster. Great, thank you. And this is, I think we have time for at least one more question. This is from, who is this from? Marsha. She says, I have pain in my left shoulder that hits a little below my shoulder. I believe it's due to sleeping with my arm shoulder bent up while sleeping on my stomach and resting my head in the crook. I've been trying not to sleep this way, but raising on or twisting my arm in daily life can hurt like the dickens. That's like persnickety, the Dickens. Do you have an yeah. exercise that would help? And then one of the live viewers is saying like, if, you know, how can you help people like that have these things sleep if they, if they're used to certain positions, are there pillows, things like that? Yeah. So sleeping is hard because when you're, when you're asleep, you're asleep, right? You don't know what you're doing. Your, your body's just going to go into the positions that it likes to go into. Um, 
I mean, depending on your mattress and your pillow, there's a lot of different variables that, that you could you could use. Um, you know, I have an air mattress, which I love, not the kind that you camp on, but the kind of the real mattress that like looks like a real mattress, but it's a lot easier to change the sheets because it weighs nothing, right? You can lift it right up. And um, I've had it for 25 years. They don't wear out. You, you, you just have to change the, the bladder if it happens to leak and it's not water. So you're not flooding your home. Um, so that said, I love air mattresses because it cha changes a lot of the mechanics of when you're sleeping, but positions are hard. I mean, I've, I've heard people use some you know, thoughts of, well, let me go ahead and tape a tennis ball to your, your breastbone, your sternum, so that when you go to turn on your stomach, it's going to be uncomfortable and you're going to turn off when you're, when you're sleeping, you know, those kind of things. So there's a lot of different strategies. I think if you do an internet search, you'll find some, some people are pretty creative. Um, but, you know, recovering from that, that's a whole nother ball game because there's a lot going on with the body. That's not just the sleeping position right? What's the person's activity level? What's their physical fitness level? What's their endurance level? What's their nutrition intake? Um, you know, what do they like doing? What's their job uh, tasks and activities, right? That kind of thing. So there, there's a lot of variables there that makes it impossible for me to just give somebody an exercise to do. Um, the most important thing is, you know, is, is to make sure that you're using the whole body when you're using the shoulders and you're not isolating. And as I said, in part two, I'll go into more of that next week. I do have on my YouTube channel, I do have some videos on shoulder, which shows some other movements that, uh, that might be helpful for people as well. Thank you. I think we might have time for one more. Um, I don't know why this is anonymous, but I'll respect that. I'm a 69 year old who swims a mile of front crawl most days, and I'm suffering with swimmer's elbow. Any suggestions on how to alter my stroke to decrease the discomfort, which has spanned the last three years. And I recently started experiencing discomfort in shoulders also. So um, I think cross training is important when, when someone, kudos to somebody that age who's swimming like that. That's great. Um, swimming, we have to remember swimming and land are completely different. So if somebody gets into the water and starts exercising, it's a completely different ball game because of the buoyancy, because of the water. So a lot of people who have arthritic joints love working out in the water because it, it de-stresses the weight on the joint. It takes the pressure off the joint so they can work on strengthening and motion and all of that in the water. And you've got the resistance of the water. But once you get on land, it's a very different thing. So I think it's important. And, you know, obviously I can't diagnose this person or, or specifically give them specific advice. But I think the important thing to note is what's being done when they're not in the water. Is there some way to, because if you're doing the same things repetitively and there's no other body areas getting addressed, you may find doing some very good, healthy, um, authentic human motion, motion when it comes to weight training might help to resolve that because it, it may just, I mean, there is such a thing as overuse if you're only doing the same thing over and over and over and there's no other counteraction to it right? You're going to create more power in one area and weakness in another. And now it's going to change the timing and the biomechanics of the joint function. So hopefully that's, that's helpful. Perfect. You know, I think I might be the last person on earth that uses a waterbed. <laughs> 
Oh, so do you have, is it full wave or, or partial? No, I, it's 70%. We put, we chose, they let you choose what percentage of baffles. And so it, it's, it's pretty mm-hmm. much semi-waveless, you know, I mean, it moves a little bit, but it's so, I mean, it's. Oh, they're it's, amazing. Yeah. It takes all the stress off the body. It's like an airbag. Well, we've really slept amazing. on it our whole marriage. And like, when we travel, it's like, oh, we can't wait to get back home. You know? I know. No, there's no place like home. Right. Exactly. Well, thanks. This was wonderful. And I can't wait for part two. All right. Thank you. I look forward to it. Thanks, Eileen, and thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Come back, please, bright and early tomorrow, 8 a.m. We've got a show at 8. We've got a show at 9. We're going to celebrate Dr. Bill Dysinger's 96th birthday together. Take care, everyone.